Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Robert P. Jones. He's the CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute and the author of several books, including The End of White Christian America. We discuss some of the findings from PRRI's 2016 American Values Atlas, the single largest survey of American religious and denominational identity ever conducted. The report is based on a sample of more than 101,000 Americans from all 50 states and includes detailed information about their religious affiliation, denominational ties, political affiliation, and other important demographic attributes. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Robert Jones. Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. You, you produce so much interesting data that keeps me thinking. Your new study, 100,000 interviews. That's right. How many people do you have to hire to do 100,000 interviews? <laughs> like, like, I mean, that's like, like I, I just, I feel like we hear, you know, you come out with a study like this, right? You hear about it in the New York Times or HIY, people write about it. And I don't think anybody thinks about like the project it is to, to, to get one of these big demographic pictures of Americans religious moral spiritual like trends and stuff yeah no it was a big deal and you know there's lots of ways you can shortcut getting massive amounts of data today but but i mean this survey is a hundred thousand people it's random digit dial live telephone interviewers um so it's an enormous project we we were essentially interviewing um about you know on average two thousand people a week across all of 2016 january to december uh, so it took you know full year to collect the data, even at a pretty you know pretty good pace of about two thousand people a week. Now, all right, you're the people that are doing the interviews. Like, how do you find them? Do you, Monster.com? I mean, what, how many like how many callers do you need to do two thousand interviews? You know, it's it's a lot. I, I don't even know if I've got a, a you know final tally on you, but I mean, but, but essentially we hire out a huge call center um, to do the calls. But but the, the the important thing is that these are all randomly identified people, so nobody can opt in. Uh, you know, it, 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 we have um, 60% cell phone, 40% landline to make sure we're getting all those people who don't have, um, uh, you know, landlines in their house anymore. Uh, we, they're all bilingual, English and Spanish. So we're both like, picking up English and Spanish dominant uh, speakers as well. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a call center full of people every week, um, you know, to kind of tally up this, this, uh, this data as it goes. But the important thing is that it is a random probability sample. That means that everyone in the country, in theory, has an equal, you know, equal probability of being contacted uh, for the survey. And it's really the only way to know that you've got, um, you know, a good representative sample of, of the country. So, okay. So it's like jury duty. Like you, you want it to be as random as jury duty. Yeah. Like except with that, you can't have people selecting out like the attorneys. Right, like right. Yeah. So that's, so when you do that, like so, you you contract with the call center. You write the interview questions. They do the wow, and it takes like over basically a year. Yeah, to collect this much data. I mean, you know, it, it just to put it in perspective. I mean, the typical you know survey you see, uh, you know, from us or from Pew or from the New York Times, ABC, um, you know, the MSNBC, NBC, any of the media outlets. Uh, th- those polls are typically a thousand people, and that's a pretty robust sample actually. And this is you know. It's a hundred times, uh, you know, that, that size. That must also cost a lot of money. 
<laughs> it does. Yeah, it, it it's uh it's not an amount we're advertising, but it's an enormous it's an enormous <laughs> amount of resources uh you know to pull the whole thing together. Um you know, that's that's exactly right. Does doing this kind of work change how you think about polls in general? I mean, that's, you know, I, I know on the 538 podcast with Nate Silver, like just about every episode they have this question, good use of polling, bad mm. use of polling. Mm-hmm. And they talk about like certain kind of questions that are that generate un, unhelpful data or or, or, or or the way you ask it or certain things that people will say uh, just because of the nature of the question. I mean, are there things you know now, like when, as you're thinking about polling and things like that, that you're like from doing this kind of work? The, these are what I think I've learned about the polling process. Yeah. Well, you know, we're always really careful um, about, you know, everything from question wording on an individual question to uh, question order, you know. So what happens if, if question A comes before question B? Um, and we've, you know, we have a lot of different techniques that we use. If we think that two questions are going to influence each other, for example, we'll often randomize the order that they appear in the questionnaire. So respondent A will get uh, one question first and respondent B will get a different question uh, first just to make sure that if there are any differences, they average out um, over time. Um, the other thing, though, with a survey this big is that you really do get a, a, in, in on a topic like religious identity and denominational identity, which was the focus of this survey. You know, you do get a real picture of the complexity uh, of the American religious landscape when when you can measure beyond like big boxes and you can measure all the way down to, um, you know, religious organizations that make up, uh, you know, less than 1% of the, of the population, for example, which we can just never get uh, from typical uh, religion surveys. Are all of the interviewees anonymous? Yeah, that's right. So we get, you know, guarantee uh, anonymity. There's no identifying, you know, information attached to them. So Oprah could be in the sample. You could be. Know. Yeah. No, I, she would have an equal chance as you or I are being, uh, uh, of being in the sample. No, my first most interesting takeaway or the jumped out at me is there's no state that's less religiously diverse than Mississippi, right? Six and 10 Baptists. My home Six state. People are bad. Six and 10. And you're a Baptist. <laughs> that's right. I grew up bad. Well, I, I'm not Baptist at, at, at the moment, uh, but I did uh, grow up Southern Baptist. Yeah. In Mississippi. And the most religiously diverse state is New York. Yeah. Would you have picked that going into it? You know, I mean, those are kind of stereotypes, like, you know, that you might have picked out. Uh, but but I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, it, it's not just uh, the bi-coastal, you know, states where a lot of religious change is happening, that we see it, uh, you know, in Kansas, uh, you know, in, in Iowa as well. I mean, it's certainly it's affecting big places with big metropolitan areas more. Um, but, you know, we still see, you know, for example, like you think of Kansas as a pretty, uh, you know, religious state, but it's one of the states where the quote unquote biggest or the biggest quote unquote religious group is actually religiously unaffiliated Americans uh, is is in Kansas, uh, which you don't, you wouldn't really have thought about as sort of kind of heartland country, uh, you know, in the middle of the country. Uh, but but it, it's uh, it's where Kansas is today. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting is is, is what you see in the heartland kind of similar trends just at a different ratio than what you see of the coastal kind of you know and and in it's it's not just a different ratio it's it's actually i think more a, a different starting place you know so they start uh, at a much more homogeneous place and so the changes may be moving you know for example from being say you know two-thirds white and christian down to being 55 percent white and christian um but but that's 
significant, right? Even if it's still overwhelmingly, um, you know, one one religious, one big religious group or, or a denominational family. But 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 we do still see the changes that are occurring that we see at the macro level nationwide. We see it in every state. Um, you know, it's just a matter of kind of starting points that I think makes it seem sometimes less dramatic. Um, you know, when you start off in a state like Mississippi or others that are, are more homogeneous. You know, there are several religious websites, mostly Christian, I think of, I saw, you know, blog posts, interpretive stuff, like writing about the study. And, and you can predict, uh, it's kind of like a, oh, PRI study comes out again, more unchurched people. Yeah. Do you do the atheist websites you ever say they're like yeah PRI we're growing <laughs> no there's certainly yeah you know the secular coalition of America I think wrote a piece about it um, there's and there's others that are that are seeing it um, you know what's different about it though I think is that um, that group of religiously unaffiliated Americans is so diffuse in the country like there's not like it's not like there's a denomination that's claiming all of them that can all of a sudden you know put out its next press release and say ah our membership is growing. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this group is that it is diffused. It's not captured under any one single umbrella. And it's, it's a pretty diverse group of, uh, of people now that it's, you know, about a quarter of the population, 20, 24% um, in our last study. And, you know, I've read some stuff about people that are within the nuns, the duns, that people that are not, they don't nest, they don't, participate in regularly an institutional life of a traditional religious community, but a lot of them are Christians. And if you ask about their beliefs, they're not atheists. They're, not, they're, 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 they're recognizably Christian, at least in belief, but they're just kind of done with regular affiliation in the institutions connected to it. Well, this is a little bit different. I mean, at least this, you know, our measure here is not about, you know, whether you go or are a member of a synagogue or a mosque or a church or any other congregation, it really is about self-identification. So, and these are people that we ask, what is your religious identity? Are you, you know, Protestant? Are you Catholic? Are you Jewish, Hindu? And we go through a whole battery and we even have a couple of follow-up batteries if people give us maybe an ambiguous, you know, definition. We kind of ask, and you know, is that a Christian uh, denomination or not? Those kinds of follow-up questions to make sure we've got it as, you know, close, uh, closely tracking it as we can. And this growth of this group is, you know, is a group that is saying to us um, that we are either atheists or agnostic or nothing in particular. And the group that's growing the biggest out of those three possibilities of landing you in that bucket is actually the not the atheist crowd, not the agnostic crowd, but those who just say we're nothing in particular. So they're not claiming to be atheists, not claim, not sort of identifying as agnostic, but just kind of a, you know, nothing in particular. And that group is overwhelmingly secular. So even when we ask them a follow-up question and we say, so, okay, do you consider yourself, you told us that you're not affiliated or you don't identify with a religion, but do you kind of consider yourself uh, religious or more of a secular person? And most of them will tell us that they consider themselves more of a secular person. When you get this data, right, you, you know, it comes, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of trees gave their lives for the, you know, or, okay, you get this big stack of paper or a big PDF or what, I mean, how are you looking at, what do you, what's the first thing you look at or what are you most interested to see as a guy that's sort of, you know, the, as you know, as you're the guy that's getting the survey together and, and some, and summarizing the data. I mean, what, what do you go to first? What, what's the thing that makes you most? Yeah. Curious? Well, for us, the great thing about this survey was that we can do geographic units that we can usually never do. So again, in your typical political survey, 
of a thousand people, you can go down to um, like regions. So you can look at the South versus the Northeast, but that's as far as you can go. You can't look at Texas versus, you know, Mississippi. But because we have such a large sample size, we can actually look at all 50 states. Um, and so one of the more interesting things to me was um, being able to look at how these things are changing all the way down to the state level. Um, and in fact, we've got enough that we can actually look at um, the 30 largest metropolitan areas. We can even look at Cleveland versus Houston, uh, for example, and, and, and compare um, and contrast across those. And in fact, we, we um, because I think it's one of the more fascinating uh, things, we've been able to, we've put it online. Uh, so, you know, any of your listeners can go to, we've, the, the, the big project is called the American Values Atlas. Um, and it's at ava.prri.org. And there's an interactive map where you can click around, you can compare the states yourself and get a full, you know, demo, kind of religious and demographic comparison state, state by state. So I'm in like Bucks County, Philadelphia, <laughs> like yeah, uh -huh. right outside. Is there anything I should know about my demographic area? <laughs> you know, I'd have to look it up. I don't think I've got that queued up right uh, on the top of my head right now. But, uh, but you know, just one example, I think, on the state level uh, information is that, you know, we also have um, on, on the ground, thanks to uh, the Pew Research Center, um, who did a fairly large survey, not as big as this one, but but large enough that we could look at most states in 2007. Um, so that means that we can take our survey from 2016, look back at, at the Pew data from 2007 and see really interesting things like, you know, in 2007, for example, uh, there were 39 states um, who had majority white Christian populations. Uh, but in our last study, that number has dropped to 23 states. Um, who, so less than half now uh, that have a majority uh, white Christian uh, populations. And you point out that white evangelical Protestants are in decline, uh, that they account for one in fewer than one in five Americans, like 17%. Yep. But but yet, what an amazing political influence. I mean, for 17% for of, the, of the population, mm -hmm. is that because, do you, do you think the, the, the seemingly disproportionate influence or, or it's, it's just because the single issue voting or the passionate on the vote, is it, it what, what's the secret to their uh, political success? No, it's a great question. You know, in our, our data, uh, we, we are showing, you know, for example, if you just kind of go back um, you know, not that far, um, you just over the last decade, for example, 2006, white evangelical Protestants were 23% of the population. And our last data, they're 16.8. So just shy of 17% uh, of the population. Um, so there's a clear decline in the population. But when you get into political space, there's a couple of very interesting things that happen. And one of them is um, that um, uh, really since Reagan, uh, white evangelicals have been active almost entirely on the Republican side of politics. So what that means is you've got, uh, you know, sure, 17% of the population, but that's active all almost all on one side of politics, right? So that means if they were evenly split, it'd be the equivalent of them being a third of the country, right? If they were evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. But because 81% of them voted for Donald Trump, for example, that's and that's pretty typical, about 8 in 10 since Reagan, uh, white evangelicals have voted for Republican presidential candidates. So they're able to sort of um, be much more influential because it's all loaded on one side of, uh, they basically almost double their influence because they're all active on one side of the uh, political aisle. The other thing to say is that um, there is a kind of activism and passion there for being active in politics um, and, and a history and a habit of voting. 
Um, so, for example, um, if we just go back two election cycles ago to 2008, um, they were um, about 21 percent of the population, but they made up 26 percent of voters. Right. So they were five points overrepresented in the voting population. Fast forward to 2016, where they've dropped now to 17 percent of the population. But guess what? They're still 26 percent of voters. Right. And it's just because the turnout level um, is much higher than relative to other um, uh, religious and ethnic groups in the country. And so it gives them this outsized presence in our in our politics. Yeah. Like I don't hear anybody talking about like Hindu or Islamic voting. Right. Right. You know, I mean, mean, this is the group that the other thing you point out is that white Christians are a minority in the Democratic Party. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's also something that's just changed over the last 10 years. Um, when we looked at, we, um, we had this really interesting chart at the end of the report where we look at the religious composition of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in 2006 and um, in 2016. And what's really interesting about it is that um, the Democratic Party has changed quite significantly, while the Republican Party has, cha- has stayed relatively stable in terms of their uh, religious and ethnic composition. So, for example, ten years ago, half of the de- half of Democrats um, self-identified as white and Christian. Uh, that number today has fallen to about three in ten. Um, so, about a twenty percentage point drop over time. Uh, whereas the Republican Party ten years ago was eighty-one percent white and Christian, and continues to be seventy-three percent white and Christian today. So, there's been some change, but still. Almost three quarters uh, white and Christian. A lot of people have said over the, uh, the past decade or so, like, well, the culture war, that kind of stuff is waning. Or, you know, there's been this kind of looking at that as like a sort of past reality. It, 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 if demographics are destiny, it seems like the culture war is going to get more intense, not less intense, as things are just divided up and more tribal and more siloed. Well, I think what we may seeing is just a, a different kind of culture war, you know, that that because when you when you look at the two political parties and, you know, there's nothing really more powerful in our public life than partisanship. And, and it's becoming more and more powerful every decade over the last four decades, uh, particularly negative partisanship. So uh, what we're seeing, I think, is um, you know, a, a kind of use the word tribal. I think it's exactly right. A kind of tribal identity that's coalescing around partisanship that now has race, religion, maybe even region of the country, all layered into one kind of identity that's pretty hard to shake or, or pretty hard to kind of cut across. And so rather than the culture wars being, I think, organized around an issue like same-sex marriage or gay rights in the way it was in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, I think that as an issue has, has sort of peaked. In fact, this, you know, our latest uh, data are, is actually the first just in 2016 for the first time showing um, that young evangelicals, for example, a majority of a majority of young evangelicals and a majority of young Republicans now support same-sex marriage. So that issue is pretty much over, right? It's just a matter of time at this point. Um, but, but what we are seeing, I think, is this um, coalition around identity politics. And I think that's why we're seeing you know, this rise of kind of white nationalism and in times it has a kind of white Christian or white Protestant nationalism um, overlay to it. But I think it's going to be fought out along the lines of identity, visions of the country. Like what, what does it mean to be an American, an authentic American? Does one have to be Christian? Does one have to be white? Um, these are the kinds of questions, I think, um, about kind of, you know, authentic 
membership in the country uh, that I think we're going to be fighting fighting around going going forward. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. And you also note that the Catholic Church is changing mm. a lot in America. It's, it's becoming less white, and it's also it's shifting to the southern part of the country. Is that because of where immigration patterns happen? It's like they're kind of both... Yeah, it's, it's about immigration, and it's about birth rates. Um, so, you know, what they sort of began with immigration patterns, mostly where you have... Um, uh, predominantly Mexican immigrants coming uh, into the country and settling in the South, and, and not just the Southwest, by the way, but also the sort of Southeast. Um, and what, and then in the Northeast, which has historically been, um, you know, if you think about uh, immigration patterns a century ago, that's what led to kind of the Northeast being uh, the place of, you know, Irish Catholics and others uh, coming in 100 years ago, and that wave of immigration that established Catholicism in the Northeast. But birth rates among those groups have been going down, while immigration patterns and birth rates among Latinos in the U.S. have, become, have remained fairly high. And so just to give you an example of how dramatic this has been as well, if you go back to the 1990s, um, the ratio of white to non-white Catholics was about 10 to 1. Um, and today, that ratio is nearing parity. It's about 60-40 white, non-white. Uh, but we're nearing the point where there will be as many non-white Catholics in the country as there are white Catholics. And that's a pretty dramatic uh, transformation. And if what your data, if, if your data is correct, we should be seeing more Jews, Hindus, and Unitarian Universalists winning Jeopardy. <laughs> oh, because <laughs> these are the most educated groups in the American religious landscape. That right? is true. Yeah, we have a really fascinating chart, you know, that looks at um, socioeconomic status and education level among uh, among different different groups. We we look at gender, we look at um, education, but yeah, it's right that uh, at the top of the Keep with the most postgraduate degrees are Unitarian Universalists, Hindus, Jews, um, you know, and then it drops off uh, from there. Orthodox Christians are actually next in line, but but it drops off pretty quickly after those three uh, those three groups. And then at the lower end of the spectrum are um, Hispanic Catholics uh, and also like um, ethnic minority Protestants uh, down on the other end of the 
other in the spectrum. But, you know, all of these groups at the top end are actually quite small, right? So that's the, that's the difference here is that you know, UUA is less than 1% of the, the country. Hindus are less than 1%. Even all, even Jews are only 2% uh, of the country. So if you put, even if you put all of the non uh, Christian religious groups all together, and I think this is actually an interesting point in itself, uh, is that even if you put all of the non-Christian groups uh, uh, together who claim a religious affiliation, it makes up only about 7% of the country. So still far less than 1 in 10 Americans claim a religious uh, affiliation outside of uh, Christianity. And you say, like, it, it looks like nearly half of LGBT Americans are religiously unaffiliated. That's astounding. And that's a pretty big number. Yeah, you know, I think that um, it, yeah, it's forty six percent who claim um, you know no religious affiliation. So it's it's basically double the rate of um, of people who are unaffiliated compared to all Americans uh, in the country. And you know, part of that is uh, is age related. Um, that that people who self identify as LGBT tend to be younger than the American population as a whole, and and that generation is itself. Uh, as a whole, unaffiliated. So, for example, uh, Americans under the age of 30, um, 38% of them claim no religious affiliation. So that's not so far off the mark here of, of, this, of this group. But I think the other thing that's worth just saying is that, um, you know, there have been many, many churches and synagogues and mosques in which uh, LGBT people have not been welcome over the last decades. And so I think that is also uh, playing, playing a role here. Do people, do you get consulted by religious groups? Like, are they like, hey, tell us how to get, like, what are the trends telling us? How do we, do people like ask you for kind of marketing advice based on the fact that you look at these trends? Sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that we, so, you know, at at PRRI, I mean, we're a nonprofit organization, right? So part of our charitable purpose is to conduct this kind of data and to open source it and put it out there for reporters and clergy and policymakers and anyone else who wants to use it in the public uh, sphere. Um, so yeah, you know, I've, I've done uh, presentations for the National Association of Evangelicals, for the UUA, for the Reform Jewish Movement, for, you know, a number of other places. And, you know, we, that's kind of what we're here for is to kind of lay out, you know, the data and what we have and, and hopefully give everyone a, a more accurate picture of, of where the country is and where it's heading. Which hosts have the best food? <laughs> now, see, you're just trying to get me in trouble now. <laughs> exactly, swanky. I want to know what the swanky. I don't you, so you're somebody that obviously follows religion, values, and public life. You know, in the news and in our public discourse. What do you see? Where do you see the media getting things wrong based on what you're studying? Like, what are the stories that are that are misleading, or what are the stories that are, are what are, what stories mm. are not being covered that would that would help us understand really what's going on more accurately yeah. in the country. Well, I mean, two things come to mind. Um, the, the first one is that I think the media is getting better on this point, but I think we're still operating to some extent uh, with this, you know, when you think about the political parties, you know, that the Republican Party is the party of religious Americans and the Democratic Party is the party of secular or non-religious Americans. And, you know, there's certainly a kernel of truth to that, you know, so if, for example, if you look at uh, the religiously unaffiliated, only about one in 10 Republicans are religiously unaffiliated, but about a quarter of Democrats. So it's more than twice as many Democrats who claim no religious affiliation uh, as Republicans. But on the other hand, um, if you look at the fuller spectrum of things, uh, we're still looking at about you know seven in 10 Democrats who are Christian in some way, right? They're just brown instead of white. 
Um, and so I think that often gets overlooked, you know, that Africa. And, and oftentimes a little more socially conservative too, right? Like some of those Democratic non Yeah, to some extent, that's exactly right. You know, so, you know, African-American Protestants, for example, if you take like an issue like same-sex marriage, uh, they're evenly divided on that issue today. They used to be opposed. They're actually evenly divided uh, today. Um, and so there's, it's certainly the case that some of those groups, you know, tend to be a little more um, socially conservative on on some issues. And uh, so I think that's one thing. The other, um, I think, thing that uh, you know, I'm thinking about it in terms of just the, the bigger picture is uh, this point I made a minute ago that I think there's been a lot of attention to uh, kind of ang- cultural anxiety over the kind of changes going on in the country. But uh, it's often assumed, I think, that it's because you know, we have um, we're getting we have this explosion of religious and ethnic diversity in the country. It, it's a little more true among ethnic uh, about ethnic change, but in terms of religious demography, uh, you know, as I said, if you take all non-Christian religious groups in the country, they they make up less than one in ten Americans. And if you think about um, so much of the space being taken up with negative stere- negative stereotypes around Muslims, for example. Muslims make up 0.7% of the population. It's a really, really small uh, population that that most Americans never run into anyone that they know who is Muslim on a regular basis. Uh, So I think that's the other sort of piece of it. That I think the thing that's driving the anxiety much more than that is the fact, you know, I wrote about this in, in my book, The End of White Christian America, that I think what's driving the anxiety is much more the fact that uh, white Protestants in particular who've been used to being such a supermajority in the culture, now find themselves um, a, a, a sizable minority, but a minority nonetheless, um, and having to kind of negotiate more with other groups rather than being able to just dictate the terms uh, of the debate because they're so overwhelmingly large and influential. Yeah, and, and, and do you see, I mean, do you think that as things settle down, you think that anxiety will quell a bit when the reality is just kind of accepted? I mean, when we're, it, it feels like we're almost still in the tr- transitional stage, at least of living with it and learning. I think it. that's right. I mean, you know, one of the, um, you certainly can't, I think, deal with, you know, if you kind of take a page out of, I guess, a therapist manual, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to deal with something you can't name. Um, and I think one of the yeah, reasons why, yeah. you know, I wrote the book was to try to name this thing. Um, that is kind of going on in the country so that people could could be out in the open, people could have a term for it, and that we could really begin to have a conversation about what it means. And I, I think that's right. I think we're still very early um, in the transitional you know, stages. And if you think about kind of grieving stages, at, at the end of the book, I talk about, you know, uh, going through a grieving process. And the first, the first things, you know, when people get a terminal prognosis uh, uh, for their own health, I mean, that, uh, you know, Commonly, what you see is denial and anger, right? Of the first two responses before you get to anything like depression or even acceptance toward the end of it. And I, I think we're still grasping toward kind of acceptance of the new American religious realities and somewhere in the middle of, you know, maybe, I don't know, anger and depression, perhaps. So you grew up in the Southern Baptist yep. tradition. Are are you affiliated now? Are you yeah, there? so you know, I'm kind of part of this story, and pers- you know, personally, I mean, you know, my day job, you know, doing this kind of research, I'm, you know, have the social scientist hat on, but but personally, I've been kind of a part of this journey as well. I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist in uh, Mississippi, and I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, I uh, went to Southern Baptist College, uh, and uh, you know, now I uh, my wife is Jewish, and I'm attend uh, this interfaith uh, congregation in Washington D.C., and so we just finished. 
Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Southern Baptist who just finished celebrating Yom Kippur uh, this past weekend. Um, and so you're not a big demographic <laughs> reality. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're, yeah. Yeah. So that, so you have been, so you someone, you're someone that's sort of, well, you're, it sounds like you've actually switched tradition. It's, a, it, it's not an affiliate. You're just kind of a unique affiliate. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there, there's, that's something new, right? This, there's only a handful of congregations like this in the country and it's kind of an experiment and, you know, it's, it's a, uh, but I think there is this interesting um, challenge that we have as we have more higher rates of intermarriage across religious lines, um, much more complex family structures. I mean, how do we negotiate this, you know, and how do we think about religious identity when you've got, you know, a parent who's Jewish, a parent who's Christian or a parent who's Muslim uh, and they're and both parents care about the religious identity and want to pass something on to the next generation. What is what does that look like? Do you think as far as the American church it goes, it's going to look like the middle is going to get gutted out. Like, it'll be lots of megachurches, lots of small churches. I don't think so. I mean, I think we're already seeing in the data that the megachurch phenomenon has sort of peaked um, and and plateaued, maybe even declined a bit. Uh, and, you know, the and, and it's also worth noting that the ones that really work are the ones that are essentially churches inside of churches, right? That they kind of get these cell groups where there's kind of community smaller communities that then operate under these bigger, bigger umbrellas. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's more and more, what we see people are looking for really is a place where they can find meaningful community and a place they can help, you know, with other people who are struggling with similar kinds of issues and help make sense of their lives. Despite the rise of the unaffiliated and more agnostics, we're still so much more religious, right, than like Western. <laughs> yeah, I've often joked like if I were presenting this last report, you know, in Copenhagen or London, uh, there would be like the immediate, the first hand up would be. The, the question is like, well, where did all these Christians come from? You know, in those contexts, uh, if I said, oh, only a quarter of your country is uh, religiously unaffiliated and seven and 10 are Christian of some kind, um, you know, there would be this uh, shock uh, in most Western European countries. So that's exactly right. That even though we've got, we are now sort of, you know, we've basically tripled the number of religiously unaffiliated Americans since the 1990s, even though that's true, it's still only a quarter of the country. Um, and we're still looking at, um, you know, uh, again, nearly seven in 10, the country identifying as some kind of Christian, about 7% identifying with some non-Christian religious uh, group. That's still an overwhelmingly religious country. Yeah. And, and it seems like there's, there's a sort of, it's interesting when you, when we do these surveys, like I've heard, you know, the Gallup polls, appeals, most people still believe in God. And they, I, I, when, when they do those surveys about what you think about the Bible, even. I'm shocked at the answers that, and how traditional mm, the answers mm -hmm. sound. Yeah, there's some of that. I mean, but we are, we are also seeing, uh, by the way, though, a, a, a real um, uh, drop in religious literacy on some of these surveys, you know, where just really basic stuff like, you didn't name the first three books of the Bible or which of these books are in the New Testament. I mean, we are seeing a drop in that kind of, at least that kind of religious knowledge um, in the country at the same time. Who are the people that you think are the best interpreters of the religious landscape are now scholars, like, you know, scholars, sociologists, yeah. are the, who are the people that you think, you think really have real keen insight as to what's going on in the changing religious landscape? Of the, well, that's of the a good, good question. I mean, I, I still think one of the, you know, best books I've seen, um, you know, out is, was Robert Bella and uh, Will Campbell or <clears throat> uh, Campbell's, 
uh, American Grace uh, that was out just uh, maybe five years ago. Uh, really, you know, big, big look at the at the big changes in the country. Um, if you're thinking about the younger generation, Christian Smith's uh, work, who's now at Emory University, my alma mater, um, who's been looking at youth religiosity, I think, for a while now and kind of what that it may portend for our religious uh, future. Um, like, I think those are those are two that certainly come to mind um, really quickly about people who've got their finger kind of on the pulse of, uh, of our, kind of our religious future. Do you think of like Pew as like your competitor? <laughs> is, there, is, there like, is there like competition in the polling world? You know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, it, it's what I think. I think when we started, you know, PRI, I mean, the real question was, well, OK, well, we've got Pew, we have Barna, we have other people who are providing religious data. And, um, you know, was there room or a need? And, you know, I was I was one of the reasons why we started PRI is that I was always looking for data that didn't quite exist the way that I wanted it to exist and our questions that weren't asked. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, you know, we filled a niche um, here. and. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, we're, I guess, friendly competitors with Pew and with even with Gallup or Barna. And I mean, each of them have a, their own kind of um, niche, you know. And, and so with Pew, for example, I mean, they've been doing this amazing job of, uh, you know, they took on mapping the religiosity of the planet. I mean, they, you know, so they've been in uh, Africa, like, you know, provided the first really scientifically rigorous um, map of African religion. We just had never had anything like that before. You know, that's just not even you know, a space that we're, we're playing in and we're concentrated on, you know, the U S uh, and really trying to get the best picture we can of, of, uh, of U S religion. So I think there's been a little bit of, uh, um, you know, uh, people kind of finding their lanes um, as, as we've come along. So what's next for PRI? What big projects do you have coming down? the? Path? Yeah, well, we have, um, first of all, we're going to continue to do this big uh, survey question. This, this big American values Atlas project is an ongoing uh, projects. So we're already have been collecting data for nine months uh, for the 2017 uh, version of this study, because what we really want to be able to do is to map this over time. And eventually, um, you know, I think uh, maybe two or two years out from this, be able to map all the way down to the county level, right, which will require a little more than a half a million interviews um, that we'll aggregate and see if we can get uh, we just never had a reliable map down to that level and be able to see what's you know really going on. So I think that's one big thing. Um, coming down the pipe, we also have an interesting uh, uh, project uh, that uh, we're doing with uh, MTV uh, coming out. Uh, their public affairs on um, just attitudes around uh, the new generation. It's 15 to 24 year olds. So thinking about uh, what what does that generation look like in terms of their Religious identity, how do they perceive issues of diversity, those kinds of things. And then um, one more I'd mention is our, our fall survey that we do every year called the American Values Survey with the Brookings Institution, uh, where we'll be taking a deep dive on just the things at the top of the news cycle on, at, uh, with religion politics. That sounds great. And I want to have you back on to, when you get the thing out with Brookings. And also, like, so MTV, are you going to be on, uh, like, are you going to be on an MTV show? Or <laughs> I have no idea. We're still going to work out the release uh, things, but uh, but it's it's fast. We're still crunching the data. Uh, it would be a fascinating uh, survey. Well, I will have you back on, Robert. Thanks for talking with me. The stuff you guys do is great, and I I am oh, constantly. Thanks. It's always got me thinking and talking with folks, and and you guys do a great job at it. Well, thanks. That's what we're trying to be here for. I will have you back soon. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. 
share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Robert for coming on the podcast. You can find out more about him and his work at prri.fm. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, fare thee well, my friends.